God, thank you so much for your love for us. It's because you loved us first that we are able to love you in return. We pray that today you would open up your word to us and give us uh, deeper insight into who you are and to the nature of the great salvation which we enjoy. Pray that you would expand our love for you and for others. Pray that you would do this through the power of your spirit, through the preaching of your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn to Genesis chapter 11 this morning. Been studying through the book of Genesis. For those of you who are visiting, working our way through this big book, it's the biggest book I've ever preached through, and I'm trying to go faster than we did through the book of Mark. So far, I think it's working, but don't hold your breath. We're really covering chapters 10 and 11 today, but we're going to focus in on really verses 1 through 9 in chapter 11 of Genesis. Uh, I have the great privilege of having four children. It's the funnest thing ever. It's great. Uh, As I look around, I see a lot of other kids in the room. I see a lot of moms, and I see a lot of people who used to be children, so hopefully this connects with all of you, but um, in my house, we've had the experience before where my wife walks into a room. Maybe it's the basement. Maybe it's the guest room where the kids aren't supposed to go, and there's stuff everywhere, every single thing dumped out, the comforters and sheets and pillows off the bed and thrown in every different direction like an explosion happened. And typically, knowing my wife, the first words out of her mouth are, what happened? And she knows what happened. But that's the question that comes out, what happened? The answer is, well, our kids were here, and they decided to have a good time. And that's why every Lego is out, and every game piece is scattered across the room, and et cetera, et cetera. What happened? You know, in many ways, our world, our world is like that in the sense that things are pretty messed up if you look around. And we tend to go, what happened? What led to this mess? What got us to where we are today? And the book of Genesis starts to answer that question for us. It sort of lines up the human race against the law and start, or against the wall, rather, and, and starts bringing the law to bear, asking questions and eliciting a confession. As we've seen throughout our study of Genesis, things started off well, and it was good in the beginning, but creation and those who inhabit it have been marred by sin. This sin has caused, as we've seen, separation from God. It's caused conflict with one another. It's resulted in the cursing of creation, and as we find in chapter 11, it has resulted in the scattering of the nations. Genesis 10 through 11 reveals to us how the nations came into being. We've, we've seen the creation of humanity, the first family, their descendants, and now we see the beginning of the nations, different cultures, different people groups. And we see that it doesn't happen through evolution. It's not that different races, ethnicities, it, these aren't competing evolutionary groups. No, mankind shares a common ancestor. First Adam, and then secondly, Noah. He and his family were the lone survivors of the flood. Chapter 10 tells us about the descendants of Noah and his sons. It says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then chapter 10 goes on to tell us their names and where they went and what their descendants were called. Often, theologians will call chapter 10 the table of nations because it highlights 70 different names from which the nations of the earth spring up. It highlights their languages. Chapter 10 highlights their geographical locations where different groups settled. It highlights their ethnic identities. There's a dazzling diversity of human culture and history that's represented 
in chapter 10. And they all come from one source, from Noah, who is a sort of second Adam, as it were. They are indeed being fruitful and multiplying as they were commanded. We see at the end of chapter 10, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So the question becomes, well, how did all these nations come to be spread abroad throughout the earth? You see, the world that the ancient Israelites inhabited, remember, they were the first readers of this book. Moses is writing this for them. They've left Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. The world that they lived in was a mess. Competing nations, warring tribes, bitter rivalries, all these different competing cultures. Remember, they'd just been slaves who'd been subjugated for hundreds of years to, to brutal way of life in Egypt. Well, chapter 11 tells us how the human race went from being one united group to being all of these different people groups, these different nations. We see in chapter 11 that the nations did not spread out and diversify willingly. Rather, they were scattered by God. We see in verses 1 through 9 that man's ambition for glory leads to judgment and division. It's really the main point of what we're going to look at today. Man's ambition for glory leads to judgment and division. Just like before the flood, sin always spreads and gets worse, doesn't it? Adam and Eve's sin is passed down to their sons. Cain kills Abel. Noah's foolishness of passing out drunk, getting wasted and laying there naked in his tent is followed by Ham's sin as his son dishonors and disrespects him. Ham's sin is then overshadowed by the sin of a new society in chapter 11. It just keeps getting worse as it spreads. We see man's plan in verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read it for you. This is the ambition. This is the plan that, that this new society came up with. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen as mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is their plan. This is what they're going to do. And we see in this plan a remarkable ingenuity. They didn't have stone to build with. So you know what they did? They created bricks. This is technology. This is architecture. They're saying, how can we manufacture materials and then use those materials to build something? Not just a, a primitive lean-to, not even just a tent of animal skins. We want to build a massive structure, architecture. This is engineering. I know we have some engineers here with us this morning. We see their ingenuity, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but we also see their ambition to build a city. This is urbanization, which again is not necessarily a bad thing, to build a city, to not be transient, to not be wandering. And it says they want to build a tower. And this tower is not probably the kind of tower that first comes into our minds, of a, a structure that goes straight up into the sky. This would be the ancient ziggurat where each layer would get progressively smaller and smaller. So they'd start wide and build this massive base. And then they would build in a little bit, in a little bit, until it was this massive tower. And these ziggurats often served in a city as both a fortress and a temple at the very top 
pagan peoples often believed that that was where the gods would touch down and set foot. That was where they would meet, where heaven and earth would connect. So it was often these, these towers would be a temple-type structure. This is the first of those. And it was a, a pattern that would become prominent throughout many different civilizations and cultures to follow. So this is their ambition. We want to build a city, and we want to build a tower in the center of this city. But where the problem really arises is seen most clearly in their motive. Why do they want to do this? Why do they want to do this? We see it in verse 4. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There's really twin motives here. The twin motives are both pride and fear. Pride is evidence in the sense that they want to make a name for themselves. They want to reach for glory. They want to leave a legacy, a monument to their own ingenuity, a monument to their own collective power and what they're able to accomplish to accomplish together. But it's also driven by fear. They don't want to be scattered and dispersed throughout the earth. They want security. They want a fortress to protect them. You know, they're not that much different than humans today, are they? We often enthrone ourselves as gods in our pride. We want glory, but we're haunted by the reality that our gods are not strong enough to save us. So we're, we're insecure. We're afraid. We look for something in this world to latch on to so that we don't have to face our fears. In order to achieve their objective, these people resisted God's instructions. God had told them to fill the earth and to subdue it, to spread out and occupy the land, and instead they hunker down and they hole up motivated by pride and fear. This same ingenuity and ambition and rebellion would later mark the empire that carried on the legacy of Babel, carried on their legacy both in name and in spirit, the ancient empire of Babylon, likely at the same spot, likely some of the same people. You know, Babylon had a tower, a ziggurat, that was one of the seven wonders of the world. They were known for it. It was their glory. Babylon would become a great world empire that was unparalleled in glory and power. And Babylon not only historically had significance, but it would come to be symbolically significant for the rest of history. Babylon would become the prototype for all cities and societies that rise up in proud defiance against God. The spirit of Babylon. That becomes a, a theme we see throughout Scripture. It becomes symbolic. You get all the way to the book of Revelation and you see a lot of Babylon language because it typifies that spirit of pride and rebellion and arrogance of a godless and wicked society. And all of that starts here in chapter 11 in Babel. This is their plan, to disobey God, to erect a monument to themselves for their own glory, and to try to find protection in their own group identity. That's their plan. So what does God think about that? What does God say about that? They've said, let's build a city and a tower. Let's make a name for ourselves. And God says, let's not. Look at what he says. Here's God's plan in verses 5 through 9. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they proposed to do will now be impossible for them. Come. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. There's a lot of irony in this section. You know, these people are saying, let's build a tower all the way up into the heavens. And then God says, let's go down there and see what they're doing. He's not very impressed. They really don't have the power. Even with all their collective ingenuity and ambition and cooperation, they can't reach all the way to the heavens. They can't do it. So God goes down to see what's going on. And God wisely knows the danger. He knows the dangerous potential of their human cooperation. I know that some of you guys are parents in here, and, and we even have some teachers in the room. You guys who are moms or you guys who are teachers, you have some wisdom, don't you? You know kids, and you know how kids work. Now, if you're a teacher in a class, I'll pick on Katie. So you're a kindergarten or first grade? First grade. So if you have two kids who are the biggest troublemakers in the class, are you going to let those kids sit next to each other? No way. You're smarter than that, right? Because you know that twice the, I mean, two of them together, it's double trouble, right? We do that with our kids. There's certain kids that we don't let sit next to each other in our van sometimes. Because we know that together, they'll get into worse trouble than if they were by themselves. God is infinitely wise. And he knows that if he allows the people of Babel to stay united and to continue having one language, to continue cooperating, that there's no limit to the trouble that they will get into. We see God's sovereign power in confusing their language, but we also see his divine wisdom, that God knows that it is best for the human race to be split up, for the nations to be scattered. It's not that God is against cities. It's that God is against rebellion. It's not that God's against the unity of the human race. No, he's against arrogant and foolish pride. Derek Kidner, in commenting on this passage in Genesis 11, says, Unity and peace are not ultimate goods. Better division than collective apostasy. There's a lot of wisdom in that statement, isn't there? So God scatters them. He scatters the people. He confuses their language. And the result of this, the result of confusing their languages, means that God's plan will advance. He wanted the peoples to disperse throughout all the earth. Confusing their languages means that man's plans will fail. It says that the city was left undone. They left off building the city in verse 8. You know, legend had it in ancient civilizations that Babylon, this ancient city, that it was built by the gods and was a gift from the gods to humanity. But Genesis 11 sort of debunks that myth and says that Babel was really just the unsuccessful earthly work of men. And again, this passage is rich with irony. Exactly what the people feared, they didn't want to be scattered, they didn't want to be dispersed about all the earth, that's exactly what happens to them. Exactly what's happened to them. You know, their exploits are remembered. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and their exploits at Babel are remembered, but not in the way I think that they probably hoped. Not in the way that they hoped. In spite of their pride, in spite of their ambition, in spite of their combined power and ingenuity, it's always God's purposes that will be accomplished. It's God's purposes. Again, the big idea here is that the human lust for glory that these people had, that some of us have, is at odds with the will and word of God. Man's ambition for glory, our pride, leads to division 
and it leads to judgment. It's always been this way since the fall. It's like that now, and it will always be that way in the future until the final judgment. Now, those who are foolish will ignore this principle. They will try to dethrone God and make a name for themselves and accomplish something on their own. But the wise will lay it to heart. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 12. Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The brother of Jesus, James, writes in James 4, verse 6, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we're wise in reading this story this morning, we won't just shake our heads at the people of Babel and go, man, those guys are idiots. No, we'll ask our own hearts some questions, won't we? Ask yourself this morning, whose glory are you promoting? Whose fame are you concerned with? Whose legacy matters most to you? Is it that of your own? Your family? Your company? Your group of friends? Your ethnic identity? Whose glory matters most to you? Or to use the language of Jesus, whose kingdom are you seeking? Whose kingdom are you seeking? If we see in ourselves a reflection of the people of Babel, a desire to make a name for ourselves, and a fear of what's out there that causes us to disobey God, then we need to repent of our pride and our self-confidence and humbly place our trust in the Lord rather than trusting in our human efforts. You know, the human race has some amazing, amazing potential. I mean, we look at the technology here, building a tower. Technology's come a long way. Engineering has come a long way since the Tower of Babel. The human race has an amazing potential. But you know what? It's not enough to save us. It's not enough to fix our deepest problems. We can't trust our own wisdom. We can't trust our own ingenuity. We can't trust our own strength. We need to humbly trust in the Lord. We need to humbly embrace his purposes for us. We need to allow his glory to be our ambition, to allow his name to be the legacy that we labor for. This is the first lesson we learn as we read this story of what happened at Babel. But I want to take some time and zoom out today because I think that there's more. There's more that we can learn as we fit this little puzzle piece of Genesis 11 into the broader story of what's happening in Scripture. You know, we've talked a lot in our study through Genesis to this point about our personal need for redemption. Because of our sin, because we've been separated from God, we need it to be forgiven and reunited with God at the personal level. We've talked about that, death being reversed through faith in Christ, our sin that separates us from God being atoned for by the blood of his sacrifice. We've talked about that a lot at the personal level, but ask this question, what will redemption, what will that mean not just for individuals, what will that mean for society? What will that mean for the human race as a whole? You see, the judgment on Babel is the beginning of a story that's going to play out throughout the rest of the Bible, throughout all of history. God's plan for salvation, get this, this is what it, where I think it gets exciting as we're reading chapter 11 here. God's plan of salvation ultimately has the nations in mind. He has the nations in mind. Man's ambition for glory may lead to judgment and division. That's bad news. But the good news today is that God's ambition for glory leads to salvation, and it leads to reconciliation. God's ambition for glory leads to salvation, 
and reconciliation. The people for, uh, of Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves, but listen to what God says. God says in Malachi 1.11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. When you have two ambitions competing, man's ambition for his own glory and God's ambition for his, who's going to win? God's undefeated in that game, okay? God always accomplishes his purposes. He says in Isaiah 48, 11, for my sake, for my own sake, I will do it. He says, my glory I will not give to another. So God is going to magnify and manifest his glory. And you know how he's going to do it? You know how he's going to magnify his glory? Get this, in the gracious reversal of what happened at Babel. God's going to display his glory to the earth through bringing salvation to the nations. And rather than scattering them in judgment, he's going to gather them to an eternal city, to the new Jerusalem, to the city of Zion. Listen to what Hebrews 11 verse 10 says about Abraham. It says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We have the city of man here in chapter 11 of Genesis. But God is doing something different. God is doing something better. Its builder and maker is God. In Hebrews chapter 12, 22, it says that you, you who have faith, you who believe in Christ, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You see, God scatters the nations in Genesis 11, but this is not the end of the story. It's not his ultimate plan. Judgment will not be the last Word. The God who scatters in Genesis 11 is now, today, gathering a people for his name. A people, the Bible says, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Did you know that God's heart is for the nations? His heart is for the nations. We see this all throughout the scripture. In the Old Testament, we see God's heart for the nations and the promise to Abraham, what we'll see next week in chapter 12. God tells him, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We see God's heart for the nations in the prophets. In Isaiah 19, it speaks of a day when Egypt and Assyria, these two nations that were hostile to each other and definitely hostile towards Israel, it says that one day they would worship God and be considered his people. God's heart is for the nations. In the New Testament, we see it as Christ comes to seek and save the lost. We can't build a tower tall enough to get to Jesus, but he came down to us. And we see that Jesus ministers to all sorts of people, to Samaritans, different culture, different different ethnicity that had great hostility between them and the Jews. We see that Jesus ministers to Roman centurions, the oppressors of the Jewish people. We see that Christ ministers to Greeks, Gentiles, barbarians. Christ is the Messiah for all who believe, not just the Jews. And we see that Christ sends his disciples into the world. He says, go and make disciples of all, what? The nations. God's heart is for the nations. In Acts, we find something amazing happening on the day of Pentecost. People from all over are gathered at Jerusalem. Foreigners. People that had been scattered abroad in different countries, different languages, and they're gathered there. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the apostles in that moment, they preach. And everyone who's gathered there is hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And get this, they're hearing it in their own language. They're hearing it in their own language. 
the God who confused the languages, is now communicating his good news to all of these people. The message is clear. Confusion is undone in the preaching of the gospel. That division and separation are being reversed in God's work of salvation. In the church, we see that those who are divided and scattered and separated by various cultures, various languages, are brought together through faith in Christ. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 2 says. It's beautiful. Think about this against the backdrop of what's happened at Babel. It says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, scattered, dispersed, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul's teaching them that, listen, these Gentiles who are far off from the covenants that bring salvation, we've all been brought near, and God reconciles us together with himself through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, the story that begins in Genesis and arcs throughout all of Scripture, this is where it leads us, and we see how it ends in in Revelation. Listen to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. The Apostle John writes, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The echo of judgment Genesis chapter 11, is drowned out in this hymn of redemption. In the end, the nations will be brought together around the central figure of Jesus Christ and the common language, it will be one of worship. Worship for the one who saved us. This is what our God is at work doing in the world. This is who our God is. He pursues the scattered. He's going to bring about the restoration of humanity through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. So here's the challenge for you and for me. This is obviously God's heart. We can see it from Genesis to Revelation. The challenge is, is this your heart? Do your desires, your attitudes, your values, your priorities reflect the heart of God in this matter? Do you share God's heart for the nations, for those who are far off? Do you long for the unity of a redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who worship Christ? Is that what you long for? Does that fill your heart with holy ambition for the glory of God through the salvation of people? Does this vision of God's glory, does it capture your heart? Does it? There's some very practical application for us here, especially in the current moment that we stand in with what's going on in our country, what you're seeing on the news, what's going on in different places. If you are seeking the kingdom of God today, 
And it's going to affect your attitude towards the nations. It's going to change how you view people who have a different language than you. People who have a different skin tone than you. People who have a different culture than the one that you grew up in. The one that makes sense to you. The one where you feel most comfortable. The heart that is captured by God's plan for the nations will not be apathetic towards those nations. The heart that is captured by God's heart for the nations will not be self-focused, only caring about what affects me and my people. The heart that's been changed to reflect the heart of God will never harbor an attitude of pride or disdain towards those of other ethnicities and cultures. You know, our world calls that kind of attitude of superiority, they call it racism, but we must call racism what it truly is according to the Bible, and that's sin. It is sin. The Bible flatly condemns pride and calls us to humility and love. And this especially applies to how we view people and treat people who are not like us. Recently, Al Mohler called racial pride a heresy. That's really strong language, isn't it? A heresy. But I think it's appropriate. Scripture is constant in its condemnation of racial pride, let alone racial animosity and violence. I mean, that's, that's a black and white. That's a no-brainer. This sin of racial pride is confronted at every turn of the biblical storyline. I'd like to just take a quick survey and give you five reasons why an attitude of racial superiority is incompatible, absolutely incompatible with biblical Christianity. Number one, racial superiority ignores the doctrine of creation. We talked about this at length a few weeks ago. I won't belabor the point. But we saw in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 that God created man in his own image. Therefore, to disregard any person is to disregard the God whose image that person bears. Racial superiority ignores the doctrine of creation. James 3 says it this way. With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James goes... From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not be so. It is radically incompatible with the doctrine of creation. It ignores the doctrine of creation. Number two, racial superiority contradicts the character of God. We've already hinted at this some, but we can just take the book of Jonah as an example. Jonah is called to take the gospel to people who are not like him, to people that he hated, and to people that hated him as well. The Ninevites were violent guilty of horrible atrocities. They had been oppressors of all the people in the region. Jonah wanted them to burn. He reluctantly, because a fish swallowed him and spit him up on the beach, ended up having to preach to them anyway. But then he sits outside the city and just waits for God to crush them. And he's frustrated. He's angry. He's depressed when it doesn't happen because they actually repented of their sin. God reveals his character by rebuking Jonah. He says, should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. God says, listen, Jonah, I have compassion on them. You should too. Racial superiority contradicts the character of God. Third, racial superiority violates the command of Christ. We know that the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, a man fired back at Jesus and goes, well, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love that way? And do you know the illustration that Jesus gave that man? 
an illustration of a Samaritan and a Jew. Two cultures, two ethnicities that harbor deep-seated animosity towards each other. And Jesus holds up the Samaritan, the one who crosses those boundaries to love this man. He says, that's the one who loved his neighbor. That's the one who loved his neighbor. In that story, do you know what Jesus condemns? There's two men who step over that wounded man. It's a priest and it's a Levite. And what he condemns is not their violent actions towards the man. They didn't, they didn't hit him. They didn't run over any protesters, so to speak. He doesn't condemn their, heart, their hateful words. There was no hateful words coming out of their mouth. What Jesus condemned was their indifference. And he blesses and upholds the compassion and the love in action that the Samaritan demonstrated. Racial superiority violates the command of Christ to love our neighbors as ourselves. Fourth, racial superiority denies the gospel. We are united with Christ through faith and therefore united with one another. Colossians 3.11 says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. The gospel unites us through faith in Christ. And this is not just a theological concept. This is something that is to be expressed and demonstrated in the church. Even the apostle Peter got this wrong. He struggled to, to, get, to get this right in his practical daily life. When Peter withdrew from Gentile believers and he would only eat with the Jews, he was condemned by the Apostle Paul. Paul confronted him publicly for his hypocrisy. And he tells him that his conduct is not in step with the gospel. Racial superiority denies the gospel. And finally, racial superiority opposes God's plan for redemption. And we already read from, Gen from Revelation chapter 7 that has this final vision of a redeemed humanity, those who have placed their faith in Christ, who are incredibly diverse. God wants that. God loves that. God sent his son to die for that. And if you're against that, if you don't love that, if that's not your heart, you're not on the same page as God. In summary, racism rejects the doctrine of creation. It contradicts the, the character of God. It rebels against the authority of Christ. It denies the gospel, and it opposes God's plan of redemption. And that's why I think that heresy is not too strong a word to describe any sort of attitude of racial superiority towards others. This sort of heart cannot be tolerated, whether it is expressed in word or deed or whether it is privately held whether it's attitudes of the heart and twisted, distorted thinking, this is wrong. It is sin that must be confronted and it must be repented of. Now, on one hand, our world is preaching this sermon today. Racism is a hot topic. But you know what? They do it differently than the Bible does it. What you're going to hear this morning is something that the outraged world can never offer you. And that's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. The world can only condemn and demand atonement. You must atone for your hatefulness, but only God can forgive and provide atonement. He can provide atonement. If you've harbored some of these attitudes, if you've seen yourself as better than someone else, if you've had a cold, callous indifference towards people made in the image of God, God is gracious and can forgive you. If you will repent of your sin, humble yourself, and receive his grace. And the grace of God will not only forgive, but the grace of God will change us, won't it? 
Grace forgives, but it also changes us. It's going to change you personally. What you think, what you feel, what you do will be changed as you experience the grace of God and as your heart and your mind is brought into conformity with God's. I want to challenge you this morning. Let your thoughts, let your attitudes be shaped by Scripture, by this beautiful story of redemption that we've been talking about. Don't let your attitudes and your your convictions be shaped by what you hear on the news. Because everybody's got a bone to pick. Everybody's in this fight, and there's a lot of rhetoric going back and forth. And if you allow the world to draw up the battle lines and tell you which side you belong on, we won't be faithful to what God is calling us to. We must let Scripture, not politicians, not the pundits, not the protesters, we must let Scripture shape our attitudes and our emotions and our thoughts and our convictions we must allow the kingdom of God to hold our highest allegiance. Personally, each of us needs to pray for and cultivate a heart of humility and love towards other people. Guys, it's the second commandment. It's important. But it's not just going to affect how we behave personally. If we get this, if our heart reflects God's heart for the nations, it's going to affect how we operate as a church. As a church, we as a church body, as a church family, must be united in Christ. We must be united in Christ. We as the church are supposed to be a preview of what is to come, a preview of that day when God's plan is brought to completion. We are an embassy of the kingdom. We represent Christ, and it's essential that we together, as a family, as a body, walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. You see, true faith in the gospel is going to produce love for the other. It's going to produce unlikely friendships. It's going to produce unlikely fellowship that the world can't explain. You know, the 12 disciples included white collar and blue collar. Those 12 disciples included a Roman sympathizer and a Jewish zealot, political enemies. The early church included slaves and masters. It included Jews and Gentiles. It included the rich and the poor. The church is to be a preview of the, kingdom, of the kingdom that is to come where all are one, all are equal, all are united because of our shared faith in Christ. You know, the world is desperately seeking hope and healing right now. And as you look out at our world, our world is struggling to find it, aren't they? They can't fix this. We need to show them what it looks like when Christ comes and redeems. When Christ, through the power of the gospel, unites people. We need to show them a picture of what that looks like. Let's live out that picture of reconciliation through the gospel. How we live matters. But we don't just want to show the world. We also want to tell them, don't we? We must tell them. The church not only needs to be unified to display this truth, but we also are called to a mission. A mission that is for the sake of Christ and his name. If you long for this glorious future of a redeemed and reconciled humanity, then let's press on as a church. Let's press on in this mission that God has given us to preach the gospel and make disciples of all the nations. You know, an amazing thing about a university town is that the nations often come to us. We get the privilege of having people in our body from Colombia and France and the Philippines. That's just to name a few that we've already gotten the privilege of interacting with. The nations right now, many are coming to us, and we get the privilege of being God's ambassadors who can share with them the message of reconciliation. You know, the world talks a lot about racial reconciliation, 
but they really lack the resources to fully accomplish what God desires. If sin is the real problem, if sin is what causes racial conflict, then the gospel is the only solution that can bring real and lasting change. You know, we can pass laws, and our country has tried that. In the civil rights era, new laws, that happened. But you know what didn't happen? It didn't change people's hearts. We can pass lots of new laws, but give it enough time and enough circumstances, and that same ugly heart reemerges once again. That's what we're seeing happening today when you turn on the news. We passed a lot of great laws through the civil rights era, but it didn't fix the human heart. Only the gospel can do that. It can only come about through the work of Christ. The biblical storyline makes clear that the peace and the unity that the world longs for, it's impossible where sin reigns. But it is unavoidable when Christ reigns. So let's preach Christ. Let's preach Christ. If you long to see unity, reconciliation, harmony, preach Christ and allow the message of Christ to shape your heart, to shape your attitudes, and to push you out of your comfort zone towards other people who may look a little bit differently than you, who may talk a little bit differently than you. You might be here this morning, and we're talking a lot about Christ. We celebrated communion this morning, remembering his death, burial, and resurrection, but perhaps you've never trusted in Christ. Perhaps you're still carrying on your shoulders the burden and the weight of sin. Our desire, our heart for you this morning is that one day you would be present as that glorious future is realized where this multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation stands around the throne and worships. We want you to be there for that party. We want to invite you today to come Come to Jesus, confess your sin, place your faith and trust in him. He will save you. He will unite you to himself, reconcile you with God, and he'll adopt you into a new family, a new family that's pretty mixed when you look at the demographics because that's God's desire, to redeem a people from every nation. I want to invite you this morning, if you're not in Christ, if you're not part of this family yet, to come and join, to confess your sin and receive his forgiveness. Christ shed his blood for you. God loves you, and he has displayed that love through the cross so you could have eternal life. You don't have to build a tower to reach him today. You simply have to receive his gracious gift. I want to invite you to do that today if you don't know him. God has scattered the nations, we read in Genesis chapter 11, because of pride because of their foolish ambition, because of their disobedience. But in Christ, God is gathering to himself a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who will sing in unison one day the glory of Christ's work of redemption. May we long for that day, even now. And may God use our witness to add to that multitude who will be present. And may we live in such a way now that the world catches a glimpse of that glory in us. Heavenly Father, we come to you today acknowledging that like those people at Babel, we are often proud. We seek our own glory. We often harbor foolish ambitions to make a name for ourselves, ambitions that lead us to disregard your word and disobey your command. We recognize that much of the division and the conflict we see in the world around us, all of it really, is due to the sin that we carry in our hearts. 
But Lord, we are filled with hope this morning to know that you are a God who reconciles. You are a God who heals. You are a God who has made it possible for our sin to be forgiven. And your aim is to reverse what happened at Babel and to create a people for your name, for your glory, who are united through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to live out that reality in this church. I pray that our love and our humility would be in step with the truth of the gospel, with your character, with your commands, with your plan of redemption. And I pray, God, that you would use us as ambassadors for your kingdom, ambassadors who invite people to come and be a part of what you are doing in the world. We pray that you would accomplish your plans and your purposes in us and through us for the sake of your name and your glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.